did you notice that in her one little moment where she bothered to have a poetry reading in her book, she she took the opportunity to shit on metrical poetry? It all sounds it all sounds insufferable. There are like 20 people and there's the first two rows of seats are all empty and everybody has is writing poems on a theme of crisis. It all sounds terrible. But then she she slips in there, a young man in glasses recited poetry so abstract and prosodic that no relationship to the theme of crisis became clear. What? Why prosodic? What did that come from? What, what does that have to do with being unclear? What? What? And then, and then she says, uh, while the final reader, a woman in a long black dress, talked for 10 minutes about the difficulties of finding a publisher and only had time to read one poem, which was a rhyming sonnet. Well, for, okay, first of all, rhyming sonnet. But second, like, so what, what, why was that? And therefore it's bad? Like, it, God damn it. You know, I agree. But I mean, she is a fiction writer. What do they know? Buckley Smith, and you are listening to Slee Rickets. I'm here with uh, Echo, who's feeling skittish tonight, so she needed needed to keep me company. Uh, I uh, wanted to thank you all for listening, and thank you especially to those of you who have taken a chance to, to recommend the show to somebody you think might like it. Please do, if you have not yet had a chance, please do uh, just tell someone you know that, that uh, they might like this ridiculous podcast we're doing. I do really appreciate you spreading the word. That's mostly how we've been gaining new listeners. I've heard from a lot of people who who either were were told about the show one-on-one or who told someone else about it one-on-one. And uh, I, that's that's not only the, the most effective way of gaining new listeners, it's also the, the way I think I, I prefer because, uh-oh, Echo is licking the mic. No, baby, come on. Because... Uh, it's closest to the way people learn about good poems, at least, at least in my experience, the way they learn about good poems that they tend actually to read and like. So again, thank you all for that. I am speaking today with Tracy O'Day. She's come back for a second visit. She is a poet. She's the author of Restricted Movement, as well as the brand new Waving, now out from Ashur Press. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that, but it's, it's a terrific book. We talk about that, but mostly we talk about Sally Rooney's sex scenes. So, <laughs> so it's uh, it's a pretty juicy conversation. Tracy is is charming and insightful as always. And I, oh, no, Echo, Echo, come on, baby, come on. No, no, no. Just have to knock the fucking mic over. Baby, just calm down, calm down. Get you a turkey bite in a minute. So I, anyway, anyway, I, I hope you enjoy that conversation. Let's go to that right now. So I read Normal People first, uh, probably about three years ago um, in a book club. Well, it was just three of us. And the other two girls were millennials and one was from Dublin. Um. And their reaction to the book was so much more powerful than mine. Like they were like, oh my God. I mean, like people say she's the voice of, you know, a generation. And they definitely agreed with that. And they felt like, oh my God, I know every character in this book. I feel like I've been there. Um, And I sort of rolled my eyes at them. Like, are you kidding? Like the first time I read Normal People, I was just like, this is shit. Um, (laughs) She is 
like giving women a bad name. She's like representing women as submissive and like that that's how that's like how women get off. And I know it's one character, but this character is now being like representing an entire generation. So I was pissed off. But then I'm talking more to these girls and they also were telling me that like when the Spice Girls came out, how important that was to their generation because you know, they were seeing, it was like girl power. And real. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm sorry. You just have a completely different point of reference in life than I do. If you think the Spice Girls were actually something good for feminism. And that's where you're coming from by saying that this Sally Rooney novel is also like, speaks to you and is, is resonant and speaks for you. If you thought the Spice Girls spoke for you, yeah, I mean, really that's, 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 that's a harsh comparison. Like, I mean, I, I, I think, so I take Sally Rooney a, a good deal more seriously than I take the Spice. The Spice Girls, like my recollection of that when I was in fourth or fifth grade, whenever that, when that came out, like the girls in my class liked those songs and would say girl power a lot, but like that was about the extent of it. I think, it, you know, which is like a fine response if you're a fourth grader or fifth grader and it's a catchy song, but yeah, I didn't, what I'm curious because I'm at the upper end of millennials. What was going on with them? How old were they? Like, I guess they're probably well, they're probably they're probably 35. So the Spice, I mean, they would have been like little little kids when the Spice Girls came out. Yeah, and they were their mm-hmm. role models. Right. I mean, yeah. I guess Wonder Woman was like my role model. Sure, Wonder Woman and Cher were two of my like favorite. Yeah, I mean, but in models. both cases, like, there's a little. It's just a little more dynamic. There's a little more going on with Cher and Wonder Woman. <laughs> yes, because they weren't like created by uh, a machine. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what I don't know what to make of that comparison. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, I'm going I haven't read people, there. But it, it seems you like know, that. you always get me at like midnight. So no, I know, I know. Like, <laughs> who knows where I'm gonna go? Yeah. Uh, so you you really disliked normal people partly because it. The, the main character in that, and I re- there was one of the articles you sent talks about Marianne is the main character in that. And she, yes. she is a sexual submissive in a kind of a, in a specific sense, like not, not just kind of in a vague general sense, but like she, she adopts sort of a BDSM, uh, like that's part of her MO with sex. Is that right? So not always. Um, so she has this really sort of special sexual relationship with the main character Connell and that is her first sexual relationship and that it sort of is described as a like it transcends any sort of kink or any um preference it's just it's very present and very real so the sex with them is beyond that but then when she has sex with anyone else she needs to be hit or tied up um or you know treated like shit And that, you know, whatever stems from her childhood of abuse from her brother and neglect from her mother. Um, So, and then she eventually asks Connell to hit her as well. And he's like, I don't want to do that. And then she feels like she's a freak. And I don't know. So anyway, it's portrayed in a way um, that for me, like I said earlier, if she is being sort of, this character is like representing all of these college kids from Dublin and this whole generation, then I was just sort of annoyed by her. She's very, very much like, 
well, whatever you want to do, well, whatever makes you happy. Well, I just want to make you happy. Like all of that bullshit, which obviously makes me so angry. And so that's where my conflict comes in. Like, I'm like, you're writing this character and I want this character to be like, have some revelation or be stronger or something. But I mean, I understand that that's me putting my shit onto this character, but also that's why I didn't like her being representative of this generation. Right. So it was, maybe if you had encountered that in a vacuum, it would have been, it would have seemed more just like a, a book about a particular young woman. But in this case, it was, you encountered it in the context of having these people say, we're just like her. She, she represents us. So that was worrisome. Right. That was very worrisome to me. All right. So then, so, but then what, where did you go from? So then I watched the BBC program, Normal People, which is better than the book. Okay. Um, because the actors are phenomenal and acting is very important to me. Um, I go to the theater a lot. I watch films. I acting decides a film for me and it can be really well acted and sort of shit and I'm happy with it. Um, or it can be really great, but badly acted and I can't watch it. So it was so beautifully acted and beautifully directed. I mean, the whole film was stunning. I mean, sorry, the whole series was stunning. So then I revisited the book and the actors who played the character, the main characters, Marianne and Connell made the book better for me because they were more complex than actually the characters in the book itself. Okay. So then I, because I loved the series so much, then I was like, well, I'm going to read the other books. I'm going to give the other books a chance. So I read Conversations with Friends. Uh, and then when the new one came out, I mean, I, at this point, I'm just like, well, I'm just going to read her. So <laughs> you're, you're, you're in it. Yeah. I'm in. Yeah. I'm in. I'm going to read her and I can hate her, but I'm going to, but I'm not going <laughs> to hate her. I don't hate her. Like you said, she's, it's incredibly readable. Yeah. You, you keep turning the page. Like she is a very good writer. And conversations with friends, your your impression of that after having after having come to terms with normal people, what was what how did that strike you? Well, I had the same issues with the um submissive. <laughs> so now all of so all of her characters are are basically women who sit around asking men, well, what do you want me to do? Um, I'll do whatever makes you happy. And then they also, um, I thought that in Beautiful World, Where Are You, they also are completely incapable of communicating with each other. And that was true in normal people as well. Like the, the, the men and women? Yes, the yeah. men and women. Not, though the women can communicate with each other beautifully. The men and women are incapable of communicating with each other. And it felt like it... Like if it were Victorian times, I would understand because you know, you, you're like, if it's an English Victorian novel novel, and you're extremely reserved, I can like feel that tension and be like, oh, poor them. They were victims of their society. But I'm just like, why are you guys unable to communicate with each other? Like I was really invested in these characters and I had a hard time sort of separating, um, which I normally am quite good at. But I think that 
I really got into these characters and couldn't really see them as creations, except for thinking about her, like, well, you've just done a shitty job of writing every single one of your characters being these submissive women. It's like Woody Allen always writing Woody Allen characters. Uh, yeah. I, so in Beautiful World, Where Are You? I did, because I remember you wrote something about how you were sort of frustrated with the sex. And I, there are, in a, you know, not a terribly long novel, there are like seven or eight distinct sex scenes, uh, I think, in this book. All of them are Alice having sex with Felix or... Eileen having sex with Simon again and again. And, and I'll say like, they're fun to read. Like they're sort of titillating. They're like, I was interested. I mean, and, and partly there's the, like the truism about literature that uh, every, everything, everything is about sex except sex, which is about power. You know, in this case, I don't know. I mean, like it seems partly there's cer certainly some power and there's some like literal kind of like, I want you to tell me what to do, daddy kind of stuff. But, but all, a lot of it felt like it was just sort of like a, there to be like a fun sex scene to read. They do, the, the women do seem to be really, really passive. I mean, yeah. honestly, like even when Eileen began to play into the daddy thing, that felt even just a little bit more assertive. Like, okay, well that's, you're playing a role. You have an actor, like there's a jump in and do something, you know, do that. They do for the most part sort of allow the men to, do things to them. And even I think say at one point, like the most exciting thing for me is, is like seeing you be excited to get what you want. Yeah. To, um, here to be held in his arms and to feel him move inside her, this man who kept himself apart from everyone to feel him giving in, taking comfort in her. That was her whole idea of sexuality. Uh, so yeah, I mean, these are whether or not these women represent all young Dublin millennial ladies, <laughs> not, uh, yeah, there does seem to be a type. Like they do, they do seem to be kind of the. Uh, I mean, I did kind of wonder about Alice and Eileen, who are her old college buddies. Uh, and there's some jokey talk about their differences, but the main difference seems to be that Alice is is a very successful novelist, and Eileen is a is like a small time literary magazine editor who occasionally will write an article. It almost felt like they were the same character on yeah. either side of like, if you had been successful or not. Yes. Can I please, can you please tell me how someone is getting paid to be a literary magazine editor? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is that I mean, a job that people say, get like, paid oh, for? Cause oh, I've been doing paid, it for like, get paid so little. It's like, I've been so doing little. that for 19 years. I've never gotten paid no. for it. Right. No, exactly. Like, I, I mean, yeah, there, there was, there was definitely some, uh, I mean, maybe it, that's one of those things where, again, I thought, like, is this Sally Rooney being out of touch, or is like, is it different in Ireland? Like, it's that's what I was wondering. I was like, well, I know that Ireland really appreciates like their poets and their writers, so maybe they, have, they, they actually do, have, like, do really good theater. Maybe stuff they do Ireland. pay people who work at literary magazines. Yeah, I mean, because she was working for the magazine, and that seemed she was like, oh, I don't make any money. I have to live with roommates, but like, she could live on it. Right. Like she could live on what she made. There was <laughs> a small literary magazine, which is fucking insane. Uh, and if so, like I, I, I hope I wish that were the case. I hope if if that is how it works in in Dublin, then great. You know, I'm, I mean, Dublin. Yeah, I need to move to Dublin. That was, and there is a like a lot of the book is dedicated to 
Alice's angst over her success and Eileen's angst over her lack of success or lack of like certainty about what success should be. So the, one of the articles you sent me is a, is largely an interview with Rooney. Yeah. Uh, it's in the guardian. Uh, it was Emma Brock's for this article. Uh, the title here is Sally Rooney on the hell of fame. It doesn't seem to work in any real way for anyone. I'll say like as a standoffish prickly person, holy shit, she's prickly and standoffish. Like, <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really I'm pretty, pretty impressed. <laughs> I'll take your standoffish and prickly and raise you. Yeah. Good God. Yeah. Uh, yeah she, here. <laughs> she goes on a rant about how dishonest writers are when they write novels that seek to, to obscure the reality of life as a su- successful novelist. Uh, they, you know, they, they come home from their weekend in Berlin and then they write a, this, this little beautifully observed novel about real life. And then she, she goes on to say, people uh, don't like to be reminded that novelists are necessary for the production of the novels they like to read. Isn't that odd? Almost like attending a football game and complaining that everyone on the pitch is a professional footballer. Their job is to play football, not to reflect your life experiences. Furthermore, she says, it's not my job to populate my books with particular types of characters that I imagine other people might find relatable. It's my job to write about whatever comes into my head to the best of my ability. If as a reader, you want to exercise control over the kinds of things that are depicted in novels, try writing one. That's what it did, what I did, and it worked for me. If on the other hand, you just don't want to read novels about writers or women or Irish people, whatever, that's okay. What, what do you make of that set of claims? I think she's lying. Mm. I think because she's someone who has had success so early and without having to fight for it, I think that she is has the privilege of saying these things. Um, also, she's basically saying, I don't need an audience, which is a lie. Right. And and it does seem like there's a there's like there's some weird straw manning in here. Like uh, their job is not is to play football, not to reflect your life experiences. Like that's sure that's fine for football, but like aren't novels about like everyone's life experiences? Like isn't there? It's not quite the same thing with a novel. And like yeah, you don't need to cater to every reader, but also like, well, if you just write about what comes into your head, like, I'm, I'm not sure that makes it for a good novel. <laughs> like, it doesn't seem to be exactly what you're doing either. No, um, because then later she says that she wanted to write a story about these two women characters, these two friends, and then she wanted to write about how they were both in these relationships. Like, I mean, she's obviously, not, she's obviously constructing something and for a reason. And it's not just for herself to see how it plays out because that's just a lie. I think she definitely is aware of her audience. Um, I found this article definitely, um, well, I mean, prickly, yes, and off-putting and also for like when she makes these claims about fame. So, you know, she says, I can't believe that anyone would ever want to be famous. Like that's horrible. Um, She talks about the hell of fame yeah. Etc. Um, but that's because she got this instant fame and success and and is now able to make a career out of doing what she loves. And like what she doesn't understand is that a lot of the people these days who are seeking fame per se, like people who are 
using Instagram as a tool to like writers who are using Instagram as a tool, like there are plenty of poets that I follow on Instagram and they're using it in order to gain readers because they did not get success at a young age when they were in their twenties, or they did not get this sort of instant acclaim that she got. And they might be just as talented as she is. I don't think she's complaining. She's complaining about fame, but she's not complaining about the money. She does complain about being, not being considered working class. And she makes a, a sort of a, a, a you know, a, a fine and probably specific, probably correct distinction that there is a meaningful difference between making money from your investments and making money by working and that even somebody who makes a lot of money for working is still making money by working. But, uh, but it, it seems like there was, there was like a, a, a two sort of irritating sides of an argument about being qualified to write about Marxism or being qualified to write about the working class, which just made me think like, who are these people and why would anyone listen to them? <laughs> like, like, how about, how about is the book good? But yeah, I mean, I think what, what I definitely noticed that is I have something I've seen in other, um, in other interviews with people who were very successful early on, notably Edward Albee, who is terrible about this, is that she she identifies the what dis, what sets her apart as talent. That she can, she, you know, she refers to it as as um right. Uh, it seems to me a big sacrifice on their part. Um, so yeah, that so somebody who's who's famous for doing something and and. Uh, doesn't like fame could, as she says, could stop doing whatever it is they're good at in order to be allowed to retire from public life. But that seems to me like a big sacrifice on their part and an exercise in cultural self-destruction for the rest of us, forcing talented people either to endure hell or keep their talents to their self. And I think, well, that's not, I mean, she is talented, but that's not what makes the difference. <laughs> like that's often perpendicular to what makes the difference. Like that you're talented and successful is, you know, not totally a coincidence, but is like sort of a coincidence. Yes. Yeah. No, that was, I mean, Ed Rowley was asked once um, because he was adopted by a millionaire um, as, a, as a baby. Uh, and he was, he was born into a poor family. He was adopted by a millionaire. And he was asked once like, well, what if you hadn't been adopted by a millionaire and you'd been raised by a poor family in the same city? How do you think that would have affected your career? And he said, not at all. Right. Be exactly, exactly the same. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that, I mean, that, that is, and that, you know, she's, she's, uh, you know, a, a little bit like prematurely world weary the way some of her, her characters are, which is, which is fine. There was another article you sent that I was sort of baffled by. It's in the Oxford blue. The title is normal people don't do it like that. So Amy Sankey, and I don't want to beat up on it too much because she is, I think, still an Oxford student, but I was, I was bewildered by this article. I mean, first, like the title doesn't, I mean, I'm sure she didn't write the headline, but the headline doesn't seem to correspond to the article. And then the article itself, I had a hard time making sense of what was, so it seemed like there was partly your argument about, I'm, I wish it were not just a bunch of submissive women having sex in all these sex scenes. But then it wasn't. Right. No. Yeah. So, so yeah. What was your, what was your response to this? This strange. This, yes. I, uh, so the reason I chose this was just to sort of kick off, you know, the conversation about the, um, the submissive women, but I def, I mean, I didn't agree with this article at all. And it kept saying things about how women overthink everything. <laughs> 
Like, no, well, women, it's women. like it was a fact, like that women overthink sex. Where, where so it happens more than once in this article. Let mm -hmm. me see if I can find it. Um, it's possible I'm reading far too much into this, but to be honest, that's typical of how women view sex and our own sexuality. We overthink it. And like, I was like, what? Um, for girls, it's generally much harder for it to be just shagging. And I guess I was... <laughs> that, that, that came from like this bizarre passage that I, I loved because it was so funny and unfair that she said, I talked to some of my friends in the process of writing this article. It was noticeable that the girls I asked practically wrote me essays, whereas the boys' response is best summarized by a quote, it's just shagging in it. But she didn't say what she asked. No. Well, what was that the answer to? What were the girls writing essays to? And what did the boys say to, what, in answer to what? Maybe it is just shagging. What was your question? Exactly. She seemed to want the women to be more like the men. In that. Like she seemed to want the women to say it's just shagging. Or It seemed like there were some very irritating people in her life who were saying something <laughs> to her. I wish, and like, this is almost like the, the literary equivalent of like a, a pearl that like forms around an irritant that... Yeah, I wasn't sure what it where where it was going exactly, and it did. It seemed like maybe the, the Sally Rooney book was like the what was the the occasion of this article rather than the subject of it. Yes, good point. Yeah, but there's you know the maybe like if there is an argument that's sort of present here, it, it does seem to be that like in in a book when a character has a kink or something like that, there's a there's an almost, it, it's almost demanded by the art form that that have some meaning or correspondence to something. Like that it, it, it almost, it's almost crucial that that reveals something about her and that like Sally Rooney builds up this past that kind of leads to it. But of course in real life, often a cigar is just, just a cigar. And right. I, I do think that is true for, that is true for a lot of uh, things in, in literature, whether it's like an addiction or a tragedy or, you know, any, any of the different ways in which the gods can, you know, strike you with a lightning bolt because it is a narrative, it has to be imbued with meaning, but in life well, of often it really doesn't have meaning. And so I do wonder sometimes about how one could write about some of these things without distorting them by turning them into, you know, effectively into a kind of a, a quiet morality tale. I think like John Irwin once said um, in a workshop that he was just really critical of details that someone was including in a poem. It might've been me, it might've been someone else, but he was very, and I, I took this lesson away from me. It was very much just like, this is a poem. This is only like 14, 18 lines long. You only have so many words. So you have to make sure that every word is in there for a reason. Like, I don't care if there really was a penguin on that like playground. Like there has to be a reason for that penguin to be there because you chose to put it in there. So if you're choosing to put it in there as a writer, what he said was it, it needs to be in there for a reason or it should be in there for a reason and not just because oh but that's what it really was because you're not taking a photograph you're choosing one thing out of an infinity of things to talk about so that one thing should have a purpose or not, maybe not should but it does whether you give it one or not once it's on yeah. that page it does have a purpose so you have to be conscious of that and aware but and it's also like you know the loaded gun if there's a loaded gun on the wall like it has to go off i mean it's you you these yeah. are sort of things that 
as a writer, you, you, you have to know. So I oh, guess the point yeah. is, if you're going to have kinky sex, what this writer is saying in this article in the Oxford Blue is, well, there needs to be a reason for it. And she's saying, in if if, if it were happening to a, a dude, would there be a reason to it? But I don't know. Like, I don't know if I've read any novels where a dude is necessarily uh, has a particular sexual predilection and whether or not it's explained. I can't think of any examples. Well, I mean, most, I feel like most depictions, most fictional depictions of men with, with like a sexual kink are serial, serial killer stories. Right. <laughs> the, only, the first yeah. thing I think of was Patrick Bateman. So, I mean, obviously, like, yeah. I can't think of anyone else. Ray Fine and Red Dragon or like the, who, who what's his name and um, Wild Bill and the Sign of the Lambs. Yeah. Right. Which is, that's a whole other, yeah, can of worms. Back to what you said before about her sex scenes and that they were enjoyable to read. And I totally agree with you because they were incredibly, there were incredibly realistic moments in them um, where they didn't feel like there was necessarily, it was just like, Oh, this is the fumblings of any people having sex for like the third time. Like this is, this is where it starts getting sort of interesting and you feel open enough to ask questions and to talk about it. So, I mean, it was, I liked the realism of it. And I think that's what made it enjoyable that it wasn't fantasized at all. Um, except then, like, then of course my skin would crawl as soon as she says, as soon as she starts asking, like, what do you want me to do? But I mean, I guess if I were reading a book and a guy said, you know, what do you want me to do? And do you like that? I want to please you. Then I would be like, yay for him. But when it's a girl <laughs> asking it, I'm like, fuck you, bitch. Like he should be pleasing you. Yeah. You're really, um, really going after the right target. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I mean, I think part of what I enjoyed about them is that they are, um, and part, part of this may be, by you know may have to do with the the passivity of the female characters who are the the main characters we we follow Simon and and Felix a little bit but mostly the characters we're really concerned with even in the narrative sections which have a really bizarre there's a really weird literary quality that I want I do want to talk about in a second that that most of the chapters in this book have but um we're mo you know like we're mostly watching them we're mostly following the story through their eyes and they that they are so passive part of what I think that Part of what that achieves in the sex scenes is is suspense, because and the other thing is that she you know she writes very snappy dialogue throughout the book. A lot of her yeah. she even like refers to her fictional character writing snappy dialogue, and that like the jokes in the dialogue were like much of the point of or pleasure of the book. And that's I mean she she does that effectively here. The sex scenes are really talky, like they yeah. do. There's a lot of like talking through what they're doing, and that and the the passivity creates a sort of like a it felt like almost every single one of them was a sort of striptease. Like yeah. everything was sort of done step by step. And so just in terms of like creating readerly pleasure and suspense, that's fun. You know, it's almost, it was almost like, um, like, uh, you know, like in a heist movie or like a police procedural, there's like, like the action is broken down into these little discrete quantum, you know, quantums and it did feel or quanta. And it felt like that with sex. These were like sexual quanta, like step by step, you know, <laughs> and now he touches the breast and now she unzips the pant, you know? So, you know, like that's, it's fun to read again. I don't know. I don't know what it adds up to, but 
Like it's hard to write 350 entertaining pages. So, all right. So, so the, the really weird thing that she does, and I, I, as I said, I have not read her first two books, so I don't know if this is something they have in common, but up to chapter 23, I believe chapter 23 is when it breaks. I think almost always up until then alternating a narrative chapter with a, an epistolary chapter. And, and of course it's right around then that they meet up. And so they stop writing, they stop needing to write letters to each other. And then the, the very end of the book is another letter. Um, but up till then in the narrative chapters, she writes with an almost, it's not even like a journalistic objectivity. It's like a security camera objectivity where she doesn't, it's, you're following the characters, but it's not actually, it's neither first person, nor is it even really close third because you don't hear the thoughts. And even when people have little facial facial you know, expressions or little gestures, she always is careful to include as if thinking this, where he seemed to be waiting for this, but it's like, she never intrudes on what the characters are actually thinking. So it's, it's a really weird effect. I mean, like part of what makes it not like it's it's like if it were a few degrees further it really would be like it rubs the lotion on its skin but i think it's <laughs> partly because it has so much so much of it is just like unattributed funny dialogue that feels more like you're sort of immersed in a scene but then any description of action is like really has this really odd objective mode and i don't know what that is once you get to chapter 23 for some reason, you suddenly get like tons of memories. You get to like, you spill into these people's minds and you see their childhoods and like you kind of wash from one mind to another. And it, it just gets a lot messier after that. But up till then, it really is like, unless I missed it, she's pretty scrupulous about keeping us outside everybody's skulls. So it's like it literally a fly on the wall, but not a fly inside the mind. What is what? Why? I don't know. <laughs> like, I, don't, I couldn't make heads or tails. Like, I don't know. I, did she do that in the other books? Yeah. What? Um, what, what and it's extremely effective. I mean, you're asking why, but I mean, it kept you reading and it could be another sort of example of like some sort of like withholding in order to make you in order to increase tension and in order to make it suspenseful um, and never really knowing what the characters are thinking, but just getting hints at it and, be, and seeing it from, like you said, security camera perspective is a very good description. I'm thinking specifically of the scene of when Felix is in the car and he's rolling a joint and like that's what came to mind as soon as you mentioned that it's very much like telling it's showing, sorry, it's showing and not telling. So you're a hundred percent seeing everything, but not hearing anything inside the character's head. Right. And I think that does add to the mystery of the characters and maybe that's why they're intriguing to us. Maybe because we're actually giving them more of an internal life than they deserve. And then they end up being, we end up projecting like maybe our own inner life onto these characters. Therefore they become more human and well-rounded, but not because of anything Sally Rooney is giving us of their internal monologue. Maybe. I mean, it, it certainly felt like 
it had an almost the quality of like a scrupulous fairness. It was almost like no. she wasn't making any assumptions. At Not all. judging. She wasn't judging. She wasn't, she was almost like waiting for consent to enter their brains. Like it, it, it felt, it felt, um, like decorous or correct in this sort of odd way. I mean, I, I don't know if it's just that I'm not a hip young Dublin millennial, but I, I was, I was interested in all of these characters and I found some of them in, you know, in alternating scenes kind of more or less sympathetic. And I liked listening to them and I liked following them along. I didn't relate to any of them and I didn't feel like recruited into the perspective of any of them in any way, male or female. And, and even like, even though there were passages where like uh, Alice in particular had some rants that I very much agreed with, but I didn't, I always, in a way, like maybe partly because of that description, I always felt very much relegated to the the house i was not on stage at all like I, I was watching from a distance from my seat and it was a good show but if i think about novels where i've been really swept away whether it's a character who, whose life is much like mine or not i it, i get caught up in them and i get like i think that's part of it is like i was interested in all these characters and i was interested in what happened to them but I don't know that I will be haunted by any of them. And that may be just because it's not really, I'm not, you know, maybe Sally Rooney would tell me to go fuck myself and then maybe I should, but, but I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, it is, as you said, it's, it's very effective. And, and it actually makes sense to me that you say that the, the TV series was better, assuming normal people had, you know, was, had, some some of the same quality, it felt a little bit like a line drawing. Like there was plenty of detail and there was interesting fi figure and shapes and development, but it was not saturated. Right. I mean, almost like the way a play or a screenplay needs to be acted, needs to be, you know, needs to meet with these other flesh and blood elements in order to create a world, in order to create, like really create life. It felt like maybe these are meant to achieve their full potential as adaptations. No, I totally see what you're saying. And I think that makes perfect sense. It was like, yeah, like they had a paintbrush applied to them. You know, they, they came to life once they were on the screen. And just like I said earlier, like it, it made the characters so much more real and less cardboard i mean they definitely do feel cardboard sometimes and i know exactly what you mean about reading novels and when you are a hundred percent with the character and like i don't care if it's harry potter or proust like mm. i have been like with these characters a hundred percent and i did not i did not feel that way with any of sally rooney's characters it definitely felt like i was watching them I, and watching them and She's not judging them, but I was judging them the whole time. I mean, and I think my, my primary, like the, the, if it were a movie and I were shouting things at the screen, the things I would have shouted in most cases were like, communicate better with each other. Exactly. <laughs> no, she's not trying to break up. Just hold on a minute. Slow down. Like, stop being jerks to each other. Listen. 
yeah, it did. It was, I mean, not like that, that you do get that feeling a little bit that they were, they were as excluded from each other's minds as, as we were. Yes. Even like, I mean, I found it like almost shocking at the end when there is finally sort of a blow up between Alice and Eileen, you have been kind of wondering the whole fucking book, why Alice who's rich as shit and is living in this big rented house keeps waiting for Eileen to come visit her. Right. And like, I, I mean, finally, like when she does come visit, she's like, you, you know, this was really expensive. Like, you know, I had to pay like for a, a ticket and this and like take time off work to do this. And Alice never goes to visit her. But then it's even worse than that. Like she, she blow, she like blew Eileen off while she was in Dublin. Like she yeah. really was an incredibly negligent friend and seems totally incapable of like even digesting that fact when she's confronted with it directly. And it, it did like, it really did make me want them just to just to like give each other the tiniest benefit of the doubt at any scene. Yep. So there was this article, I probably should have sent it to you though. I, 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 um, I have mixed feelings about it and it felt very much like it had a, an agenda of its own, but there's the Stephen Marsh article a while ago about, he was, he really was pretty unfair to Sally Rooney where he said, I'll send it to you now. You can read it uh, after the fact, you know, and probably be mad at the way I was. Like he was, he was pretty unfair to her. He a hundred percent equates her with her character in the novel, which is understandable, but like really not quite fair. And even if you read a tiny bit about her life, it's like, well, well, she's been married for a while. And like, this is, this really isn't quite accurate, but he, he makes this big claim that generation X novelists were novelists of the voice and millennial novelists are novelists of the pose. And I don't know that that there's any truth to that. And I also don't know if that, like, based on his description, if, like, the voice was, is better than the pose. But right. what seems to be the case is that she is not, her novels are not driven along by a, it doesn't seem to me to be, like, a really powerful tornado of a voice that drives her novels along. There is a, I don't know that it's, I don't know that pose is fair, but it does seem to be almost like tableaus or transcripts or, like a, like a care, carefully choreographed series of maneuvers, but it doesn't, you don't have a, you know, sing muse of the wrath of Achilles. You don't have like a big world swallowing voice that drives its way through the whole novel. I mean, even the letters are, they're witty and they have a perspective to them, but I don't know. It doesn't seem like voice is, is quite, a defining quality for her. I don't know. What was your, what did you make of that? Um, I mean, I think it goes back to what you were saying before. I think there's just such a detachment that you, I mean, the idea of voice is your own sort of originality, your own sort of your stamp on things, I guess, or, but also I guess an eloquence or I don't, I mean, I don't even know how to talk about like, like Go ahead. You, you have to be presumptuous. To yeah. Something. You have to eat like there. Ha- you can't do it without a little bit of arrogance. You yes. isn't. She she is prickly and presumptuous in her interviews, but I in her book she seems very pointedly n- not not to be. I see what you're saying, and I do. I mean, I am calling that detachment, and I think that that's more of what it is. Yeah. Just observing from not really afar, but 
not inside. All right. Can I, can I ask like a dumb version of this question that I think probably is like probably the wrong way to go, but it is coming to mind. Like she, she's really, really worried in this art, in this article, this interview. And, and like in the in a couple of interviews I've heard her give, like she does have a preoccupation with the fact that she grew up working class, her parents were working class. She is a, became a really big, famous, rich novelist at a very young age. And you know, people have given her grief for being out of touch. And there is even a, there seems to be like a, I won't try to psychoanalyze her, but, but at least in two of the novels, it's a, a posh girl with a working class guy. Uh, right. And, and so there, there is some, and there's certainly some tension about work and about, you know, lib, you know, like what you have the freedom to do during your day and, and the nature of your work and what's fair and what's not fair. That that is a, a preoccupation. It, it it makes me wonder a little bit about. So I sent you uh, the Alan Shapiro essay about identity, and that's a whole question. But like, I know he one of the one of the um, the refrains of our cultural moment that drive him crazy is the refrain "Stay in your lane." I wonder if some of this detachment, some of this sort of scrupulous fairness, some of this security camera observation might be a sort of a, a, an exercise of literary virtue, according to this view of things. Like you, you can't write with a big freight train of a narrative voice without sweeping people up and making assumptions about them. And which is not to say like stereotyping or doing ugly, you know, ugly, lazy things with them, but you can't be quite as you can't wear kid gloves with your characters in quite the same way. I wonder, I wonder if some of that has to do with, with the preoccupations of the moment. Or her own personal preoccupations, which are different than the preoccupations of the moment. Cause it seems like she isn't really that concerned about the preoccupations. Some of them, like, like you said, the idea of her sort of interest in the working class and the fact that she says that she can't call her or, why can't she call herself working class, you know, because she works. Yeah. Is it also part fantasy? Like, is she, does she wish that she were, was like the rich girl when she grew up? And that's why she's got these rich girl characters. I mean, who knows? I don't like, I mean, I'm all about death of the author, but yeah. she is very, people like to draw parallels between her and her characters, which are definitely not always accurate. But then other times I do think, a lot of the limitations of her characters are based on her own limitations, um, which ends up hurting the literature. Because mm. if she has lived a very sheltered, very limited life, then that's all she knows. And that's all we're going to get. It also, like, part of what I wondered about with these characters, though, is the like they have a lot of frustrations with the world around them. One of them is a, you know, like works for a politician. Uh, they, they all have these sort of, except for Felix, they all have like pretty strong political opinions and allegiances, but the, in terms of their daily life, the choices they make, like Joanna talks about like part of the frustration with, with psychiatry right now is that it's, it's not as developed as some other fields of medicine. And so there are a lot of really complex problems but there's a limited number of solutions. Like you, you have a limited number of tools in your belt that you can use and you can use them 
you can be very informed when you use them, but there's only so many buttons you can press. And it feels like for these characters, the two buttons they can press are, am I going to spend time with this person? Am I going to fuck this person? And like, that's it. Like, like either you like left one party to go to another party and showed like what mattered you by doing that, where you like got on a train and went to this other place, or you decided to have sex with this person or not. Like those seem to be the only two pills they can take, the only two actions that they, with which they can affect the world. Yes. And it's pretty, it's pretty interesting for all that, but it is a little, it's not very encouraging. It's a little disheartening. Like, I don't know if this is, you know, it, it, I understand why. I mean, it, it, it's like it, it is very much a a novel in which the characters feel powerless. Even like like the very successful ones. Simon is also like quite successful for his for his you know age and and is very well respected and has done well. But he also he his experience of his daily life is that he makes no difference. Yes. And she says that, you know, her novels don't matter and don't make a difference. And Eileen's little magazine doesn't make a difference. And Felix works in a fucking Amazon warehouse. And, uh, you know, he at least is performing a physical service for people, but it's certainly doesn't, doesn't seem to, you know, change the texture of life in any way. Uh, yeah. All they can do is fucking hang out. And yeah, I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's most, maybe maybe it's most of us. Is it? Well, I mean, I think in the in the world of people reading these books, among the people who read these books, I think, which is a, which is a slice, which is not most people. But I, I think it is easy to let me put it this way: I think there are a lot of people who feel that way, or who behave as if that's the case, or okay. or the other button they push is posting online, which yes. is actually not a real button, <laughs> like, which is not which is not really doing a thing. I would say, or or scrolling, just scrolling. Yeah, just yeah, yeah, yeah. Scrolling, yeah. not even being active and posting. Yeah, just scrolling. Yeah, I think I think there are. Yeah, I think like there. That's that is. I mean, in that way, the book is I think very reflective of its moment. That we there is a feeling in educated circles in the Western developed world of individual impotence, like an inability yeah. to make any kind of difference in anything. I'm curious about this, this religion thing. I have a kind of a suspicion that there was a period of time when it became almost like required to be an atheist, like among the, among like the educated Western set, like it became sort of like a given that you, you were an atheist. And I think there are a lot of bad faith atheists. Like there are a lot of people who are, haven't really done that math and haven't like crunched what that means, but sort of claim that. And I get the, I don't know that it's like a big backlash, but I have started to hear among hip, young, educated people talk about religion that feels a little bit like the same thing. Like we're going to get a lot of bad faith pseudo-Christian, you know, Marxist pseudo-Christian soon in the same way that we've had a lot of bad faith, like pseudo-atheists. I think is, is my, my prediction because she's, Oh, she's I have no idea. She certainly seems to be flirting with it throughout, um, throughout the, the book. And there is like, there's, but I thought that maybe she's flirting with it because I mean, Ireland is such a nation that is religiously aligned and historically is so much about it is based on religion. Um, so oh. I think, and I think that that might be a huge 
thing that's going on there. And I think the atheism theme thing definitely has a lot to do with the fact that this might, the millennials might, I mean, I don't know if Gen X in Ireland even grew up without religion. I think they would have all gone to church when they were little and then they had to rebel against it. So maybe, yeah, maybe millennials are the first generation where their, their parents maybe said, Oh, you know, you don't have to go to church. And that was maybe, maybe they're the first generation who didn't have to go to church. Right. I mean, I'm what, what gives me pause about it here is that it doesn't seem to be the way she, she talks about religion here does not seem to be the, the struggle that one has when one is brought up in a religion and then departs from it. it I mean, even like when they, oh, were, I agree. Even when they're kids, they they refer to Simon as like, oh, he goes to church even though his mom doesn't make him. That's weird. Right. So like from from early on, that's how they feel about it. And she she seems to be reaching sort of the end of the end of something with her worldview in that passage I read earlier, which seems to be like, I don't know that I follow her logic or her theological conclusions, but it does seem to be that she feels that there's a need for some other, some other something. There's even like a, um, there's a passage that reminded me a lot of actually uh, um, Camus, who was a, 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 I think one, like a, he was like a, uh, a Christian atheist in, in a lot of ways. Um, like he was really, really into Jesus, uh, despite not believing in God. She says, maybe I'm wrong, but I believe the number of people who have done seriously bad things is not insignificant. I mean, honestly, I think if every man who had ever behaved somewhat poorly in a sexual context dropped dead tomorrow, there would be like 11 men left alive. And it's not only men, it's women and two and children, every, everyone and children, everyone. I suppose what I mean is what if it's not only a small number of evil people who are out there waiting for their bad deeds to be exposed? What if it's all of us? And there's, this seems to be, I'm, I'm, assuming, I'm assuming when it was written, this was the Me Too thing was a little more white hot at the moment. But even in other passages where she's not talking about sex or, you know, uh, Felix has a, a little bit of a a, um, a shady past. He's done some things he's not proud of. But even in passages where they're just, she talks about like going to the convenience store that both she and Eileen seem to have a very acute sense that they're even their sort of passive participation in a, in a, a you know, first world consumer culture is, is a, is a pretty malignant evil on the world. Like in that sense, there is a, a feeling of uh, like a more profound, even sense of original sin than um than like a lot of the uh like robin d'angelo nonsense um like it does seem to be like there is a sense for them that they are they are all always already guilty by participating <laughs> by being in in the like by being born in one half of the world more or less um and that there's, that's also catholic guilt right well no right no, but i think like that that's the um it it is and that was uh you know, um, Camus, you know, uh, claim after the Holocaust was like, we, we are all, we all did it. We're all responsible. We're all in it. Um, we're all on the hook for it. Um, yeah, which it seemed like my, my prediction is there's going to be a, there's going to be a version of, there's going to be a Marxist flavored version of Christianity that becomes, that, that comes into vogue it will probably be as empty and 
bullshitty as like most people's hipster atheism and and like as most people's uh, Christianity in the part of the country where that's the done thing. So any other thoughts on Sally Rooney or sex or articles or movies or books are about her? I'm sure they're going to adapt all of these into movies or, or TV shows. Yeah, Conversations with Friends is next. It's being adapted as we speak. And I'm sure the next one as well. But I do recommend Normal People, the, um, the series. It's brilliant. So I got a copy of this book of yours. And it's this is a really curious book. So waving, this is your, you published Restricted Movement last year, a year ago? They're, they were like really published like two months apart. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. But you kind of spaced them for the, right. So Restricted Movement came out first, but was written all, all in a row very quickly after the fact. So waving is in, in, in a different sense is your first book of poetry. Waving is my first book of poetry. Okay. It is, always will be. There are a few things that I think make this really, just on the on the face of it, a really unusual book of poetry and a really unusual first book of poetry. One is that it's so short. It's very short. Right. This you've been. These are poems. These represent. You said seventeen years. Pretty much. Writing and publishing poems, and it's it is forty three pages of poems. It's also a small font. <laughs> and, um... It's a small font, and, they're, and they're, it's, it's a nice, it's a nice size. There's sort of there's a there's a lot of like what white space. Um, it's a yeah, it's like a it's a pleasing little object, and there's a lot here. But it is, I mean, I think like that's a good size for a book of poems. Part of why it seems small is that we're like there's this weird expectation that like every book of poems be like minimum 115 pages, which is insane. Uh, it's just way way too much. There's that's so, nuts. It is no, but like so, so many books of poems that come out now, I've seen a couple exceptions, but but in many cases, even among even for like young you know young poets or like a you know who had a book four years ago, it'd be another hundred fifteen hundred you know in some cases even more than that. Uh, so so I'm I am. But is it full of shit? Like I mean, are those books full of shit? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. No, I mean I think this... I think what, I think they're they're just not. I think there's a lack of selectivity at every level. So yeah, I mean that's not all the poems I wrote in seventeen well, of years. Like, that, were, that's what I'm saying. There were loads of poems that aren't in there because they were shit. Right. Well, I mean, and the the joke uh, some teacher told me um, in school was that a, the reason that a book of poems costs as much as a book of prose is that it, you're also paying for all the words that were left out. <laughs> right. Um, right. So no, I mean, I think like that's part of what I really admire about this that it is, you know, it's so selective, and I think there are. I think like one of the consequences of like a loss of any even like generally recognized standard for quality in poetry is that uh, there are, uh, you know, people who don't do any good work publishing and there are people who do good work not getting published. But like another one of the consequences and probably a more common one is that people who are fine just publish way too much of their stuff, that they're, they're sending things out that are just like good enough. We're like, well, that was kind of an interesting, had a little interesting something to it rather than like, this is going to knock your socks off. If you're like, unless you think that the poem you're sending out is going to knock someone's socks off, don't send it. Yeah. Like, it's, it's okay. And it's normal to write a lot of poems that have some cool stuff in them, but aren't quite there. And yes. those poems you then don't send out. 
Right? <laughs> and you revise them. Right. Like, so, like there are so yeah. many of those poems that were in a drawer for years that I then like was like, oh my God, I finally figured out the ending to that poem after 10 years. Right. Like, I mean, that yeah. happens. You can you can wait. <laughs> yeah. You don't need to publish it when it's not finished yet. No, exactly. Uh, so it is, it's really selective. And I mean, my that, that was my guess is that it's both, these are very revised poems, but they're also, uh, there were a lot of poems that did, just didn't make the cut at, yeah. at, at whichever level of cutting, right? That you do as you go through these and you're sending them out to magazines and so forth. So it is a very slender book. It's also a book with no titles and no table of contents. And uh, the, the, I'll say the tone of your email when I wrote you to make sure that I had not gotten like an arc that was, that was weird in some way was such that I got the impression that like since, since restricted movement, even like you had been radicalized, you had like a, you had a strong opinion about titles and poems. So I want to hear like, what's, give me your, give me your revolutionary take on, on poem titles. I don't really have, I, mean, I don't have a revolutionary take. Um, it's something, I mean, I think every poet thinks about. And every poet has to deal with the fact that you've got to put a title on your poem or you don't like Emily Dickinson didn't have to Shakespeare didn't like, you don't have to title everything. So I think I just found that a lot of my titles were too explanatory or too distracting. Um, I mean, I've, yeah, I've been, I, at a very, very early on in my career, my poetry writing career. So we're talking like, you know, age eight or 10, I realized that you can't have the title and the last line be the same. So that's obviously something that's a huge pet peeve. Um, so I just, I've always had this sort of. You can't have the title and the last line be the same. I'm trying to think. About no. That. I'm trying to think if I've seen that before. It happens a lot. Does it? Okay. Is, it happens the, a lot. Like, what is the effect when, when you do that? Cause I'm, I'm, I can't think of a time I've read that. But, you yeah. give away the ending of your poem, which is the most important part of your poem. You give it away in your title. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. The yeah. whole point yeah. of writing a poem is to get to that last line. <laughs> and if you give me the last line in the title, what, I'm sorry, why was I reading this? You already told me the, the punchline. So I see it a lot, I think, because I am a poetry editor for a couple of magazines. So I think that's one of the reasons why I run into it a lot um, is because I am dealing with people who, you know, might not be, may, maybe haven't been writing for as long as I have. And so I see that a lot. Um, I also, I, mean, I guess that's it. That's it. I just, I also felt like that in this book, so I'd been sending out this manuscript for years with titles, um, with very different delineation on the page, um, very, everything looking very orderly and very sonnets and very strict. And then I just sort of let it, let go of it all. And just, I don't know what happened. I really don't. I think it wasn't an epiphany. It was more just like a, an illness. And I just sort of said, I want to like, get rid of all this stuff. I want to get, I just want to open this up. I want it to, I want people to savor each line. I don't want them to just read it like in a column. I want, I just want more space. I need a lot more space between these words. So I started opening it up. And then I took out the titles and I think I felt that the titles were a barrier between the poems and a lot of the poems spoke to each other. And then once I took out the titles, even more poems spoke to each other. So I think I just felt so happy with the result of removing the titles. So 
there's yeah, the, the the effect I found was that I remembered there are there are like certain homes that are very self-contained and very sort of sharp toothed and um I think of like uh on 22 the one about the the I don't know what like the the boyfriend that someone else has a crush on yeah yeah that's like like that's a poem that felt very much like it 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 I, I could remember that one standing apart but often they would blend together into sort of a, a quality or a period or a stretch there even there's there's a case where like, i was looking at it again today um the poems on on 12 and 13 and they're just the the one on the left is justified right and the one on the right is justified left so they kind of sit against each other and and i keep going back and forth on whether that's one poem or two right like they right. it reads you could very one picks up where the other one leaves off but you could they, you easily could feel like when you read like Shakespeare sonnets where one kind of begins to bleed into the next, uh, but they're sort of, they have slightly different preoccupations. So I did like, I was, there were a few times when paging through it, I, I wasn't sure if I had finished a poem or I was just continuing to the next line. Great. So, yeah, it does. It, <laughs> it both makes your, it makes you look, it makes you step back and look at the forest, but then it also brings your attention to the line rather than these sort of individual units I realize, like, I think a part of why I really like titles is that I am lazy and a title is a place where you can, you can do less work and produce a bigger effect. Yeah. Like, it does a lot of work. Titles, yeah, do, like, titles like, do a lot of work. Like it is, there are certainly, like, as I said, there's some of these that really, that do stand apart and feel like they're really, um, really contained units. But then a lot of it also, I think, because it's, you know, you have orthopedic shoes and, you know, glass jars. And uh, I don't know if you have, oh, you have like a, you refer to Nerf toys. And th- so like, it, it's a book that takes place in the modern world, but a lot of it feels sort of elemental. Like a lot of it is like bodies on sand with the ocean and like sea seaweed or like marine animals. Um, but it, it feels like, particularly with the, with the, the, the poems where the, uh, the lines kind of float separate from one another on the page. I got a lot, I got the impression that I get when I read like uh, fragments from Sappho. Um, like, like there's a lot happening here. There's a, there's a whole world here and I can, I only have access to like certain little moments within it, but there is a sense of like a continuous landscape, like from which all of these poems are taken. I mean, and probably like the fact that it's called Waving and it has like the water on the cover, you know, it adds to that effect. But That helps. So yeah. I didn't have to title it. I didn't have to title the poems. I just titled the book and I was like, just think about the water. Here we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's your context. Does every single person uh, you show the book to ask you the Stevie Smith question? No, what's, oh, well, yes, yes. No, not everyone. Um, I have like, actually like three people. Because you can think of like the first, the very first poem is about a body getting washed up on the shore. Yeah, um, so yeah, it, it, it come, it came to mind certainly, but it didn't. Oh no, as it should, as a hundred percent is there okay. for a reason. Um, yep, I think it was Roger Lathbury who was the first person to ask me that. Uh, he, actually, he said, "I don't know about the title." Um, I don't know. About the title. I think it's a good. I think it's a good title because it will make people think of the cv smith poem and i was like perfect that's part of it would you read uh, a poem or a 
or a page of lines that could or could be a poem <laughs> and, or could be part of a poem. Read a page of lines. Is there a page of lines you would like me to read? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'll say like there there are a lot of elegies and and um, love elegies. I think was, I think that was what um, Marlowe called them. As in breakup poems. Yeah, maybe like it's the one in 17, which is like, it's it's one of these poems where there's almost, there's almost nothing to it. Like it's almost feels like, oh, you just sort of, just kind of dash this off, but it's just enough to kind of, just enough to draw blood. I'll read that. We can get together for these last few months, I say, but there's no chance I'll move across the world with you, you know. You know. An expiration date. You find a job, I plan your bon voyage and help you pack. But then you send a text. I'd like to go to Anagata one last time before we leave. You've accidentally written we, as if we are a we, as if we are both leaving here together, as if this is something that we want to save. I let that we wash over me then sink into it, as I'll sink into, once you're gone, the almost body temperature, September sea. That was my conversation with Tracy O'Day, again, author of Waving, Restricted Movement, uh, Associate Editor at Smartish Pace, and any number of other things. I will include links to all of her pertinent material online uh, in the show notes. And uh, I hope, oh, it goes settling in. Now that I'm about fucking done with this, she's ready to get comfortable. All right, well, thank you as always for listening. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. Until then.